0: Welcome to the Vintage Church NOLA podcast. Vintage Church is a movement of truth, love, and community. We are in our latest series called Saints, looking at the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. When we hear the word saints, we think of men and women who lived hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, completely different from us. But are we that different from them? In this series, we tackle who the church is, and who we are as saints. Take a listen to this week's message. In Matthew 20, In Matthew 20 the Bible tells us just as the Son of Man, that is Jesus, did not come to be served but to serve, he came to give his life for us. I think this is the main reason why we, as this church, must serve too. In order to reflect his character, a, a since Christo, we are called to be Christ-like, if Christ, Vino para Christ came to serve, nos, a nosotros, nosotros de a otros we para must serve others to reflect him. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Vintage Church. If I've never met you before, my name is Dustin Turner. I serve as the lead pastor of Vintage Church. If you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians starting in chapter 4 today. We've been in this book for the last several weeks in this series that we're calling Saints, right? It's appropriate today. It's the Saints Sunday. Who dat again. And uh, we are excited in this series because we're not talking about the Saints football, we're talking about the saints that are the church. Paul talks about this in the book of Ephesians, that the saints are the holy ones, that they are the ones called out by God, saved by God, called together by God. The saints are the church, and that's what we've been spending the last several weeks looking at. So let's stand together And we are going to read out loud together Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. You'll see the words there on the screen. Paul writes this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith "...joined and held together by every joint with, its, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love." You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. So, the last few weeks, we have been looking at chapter 2, chapter 3, in the book of Ephesians, and what we've been seeing is what God does for the church Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, how he saved us from our sin. End of chapter 2, Paul says it's not only Jesus saving us as individuals, it is Jesus taking vast groups of people who are very different in every conceivable way and reconciling them, bringing them together. Chapter 3, Paul talks about this is the mystery that God has called me to proclaim this good news that reconciles us to God and reconciles us to one another. And then at the end of chapter 3, he reminds us of what God does, and he ends all of this by saying, praise be to God, right? That doxology, that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask, think, or imagine. You get to the end of chapter 3, And you really get to the end of a major section. In in chapters 1 through 3, what Paul has been doing is he's been laying out the doctrine, the theology of what he's getting ready to share in application. And you get to chapter 4, and Paul begins to say, okay, based on everything that I have just told you, here's what you're supposed to do. Here's how you are to live your life lives now hopefully what you have read today and what you've seen over the last few weeks is the significance of unity in Paul's letter I mean over and over and over again Paul uses this idea that we are to have unity that we are to be unified and we talked about this a few weeks ago how there's many things in life that actually create more division than unity And here's the sad reality of the church. Those divisions are in the church as well. I just started thinking about it this past couple of weeks, and I thought about how the church is splintered into so many groups. And some of you might have grown up in all of these different groups. You have the Roman Catholic Church. You have the Eastern Orthodox Church. You've got the Lutheran Church. You've got the Presbyterian Church. You've got the Anglican Church, the Baptist Church, the Methodist Church, the Pentecostal Church, the non-denominational Church, and many more, by the way. So Paul tells us, We are to be one. We are to be unified. But when we walk out these doors and look down the street, we see so many different churches divided by so many different things. And if you're like me, you're thinking to yourself, like, well, what in the world am I supposed to do? Right? God has placed it upon you to unify the global church all over again, right? I'm kidding. That's not our, completely our responsibility, right? But here is our responsibility. Because not only can there be division in the global church, there can be division in the local church. And it is your responsibility, it is my responsibility to protect that unity. Unity. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. This is what I think our, really our big idea is today. Our triune God equips the church to grow into the unity and maturity of Christ. Our triune God equips his church to grow into the unity and maturity of Christ. Before we jump in, I want to remind you you're going to see a link on the screen, and all of our resources are there sermons, sermon notes, V group studies. Uh, between me and Christy Hagens, we've been adding podcast episodes on that website as well that are just kind of like a deeper dive into a topic. This past week, uh, we posted a conversation that I had with uh, a friend of mine who is an African American pastor talking about racial reconciliation in the church. Christy's going to be posting an episode tomorrow. About our spiritual gifts. And so, can't encourage you enough to go to that link, find all the resources, and use those resources to your benefit. Here's the first point that I think Paul tells us in verses one through six we are to protect the unity. Protect the unity. Paul tells us in verse three that we should be what? Eager. That it should be something we want to do, to do what? To maintain the unity, everybody say unity, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's not something that we should come to later or we should kind of fall into. Paul says, no, be eager to maintain that unity. And the reason is this, number one, because our triune God creates our unity. That's what Paul says when he says that this is a unity of the spirit. That's what that means. He goes on to say that it is in the bond of peace that we have this unity. Not the first time, by the way, that Paul has used the word peace. Go back and look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. The first time that Paul talks about unity, he says for he himself Who's the he Paul's referring to? It's Jesus. For he himself is our what? Everybody say it. Peace, who has made us both what? One. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself what? One. One new man in place of the two. So making what? Peace. And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What Paul is getting at is like, listen, let me remind you of what the gospel of Jesus Christ has done. That yes, by Jesus going to the cross and dying on the cross and rising from the grave three days later, our sins, the thing that separates us from God, those are forgiven. Like, praise God for that, right? Amen. But at the same time, Paul says that's not the only thing that Jesus has done. That's not the only good news about the gospel. The gospel is also good news because it took two groups, two bodies, and it made it what? One. And in making that one body, that is the church, into one, Paul says that Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace. He preached peace. He made peace. He is our bond of peace. That word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 4, bond, it's the word that's used for things that literally hold things together. I mean, think of a fastener, or I thought this week of like a carabiner, or even like superglue, right? When you put super glue on something, it cannot come apart, or it shouldn't come apart, right? And Paul is saying that's the kind of bond that God has created in His church. That's the kind of unity that we have. It's a bond of peace that brings us together, and all of it as accomplished by the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And he says that this is not just a bond of peace, but it's the unity of the Spirit. So here's what Paul is talking about. The Holy Spirit takes the work of Jesus, His death and His resurrection for us, and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, takes that work and applies it to us, not only as individuals, but to the church collectively. So the work of Jesus becomes what? Ours. It becomes for us. And the reason that this brings unity to us is because we are united by the same Holy Spirit. The Spirit that applies that work of Jesus is the same Spirit that unites us. Why? Because if you know Jesus, we talked about this last week, you have what? The Holy Spirit. How many of you know Jesus in this room? So if you know Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. And for every single person in this room that raises his hand, that means what? We share the same Spirit. And that Spirit not only dwells in us as individuals, it dwells in us collectively, corporately, As the church, and so Paul says, this is the kind of unity we have. And I don't know about you, but as I reflected on that truth this morning, here's what here's what I said to myself: Thank God we don't have to create the unity. (laughs) I don't know because in my own house sometimes we're divided. Right? Sometimes my preferences get in the way. Sometimes my opinions get in the way. And it can become difficult in any sort of relationship to build unity. But what Paul says is listen, don't worry about trying to create that unity because, number one, you can't. But thank God, number two, God has already done it for you. So we don't have to create the unity. The reason we don't have to create the unity be, is because our unity is not found in us. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is just these three verses in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And hopefully, as we were reading these out loud earlier, you caught on to what Paul is doing. He says, What? There is how many? One body, and how many? One spirit, just as you were called to the One hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one, one, and one, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven unifying elements in these three verses. One body, that is the church, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. So what Paul is getting at is, listen, none of these things you have done The unity that we have as a church is not because we've all come to an agreement and say, we're going to do these things together. We're going to be united around these things. Paul says, listen, the unity that you have comes from God and what God has done on your behalf. And so we have unity in our experience, what God has done for us. We all share the same faith. Now There might be little things that we disagree about, but we all agree that Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth, put on flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave. And it is that unifying faith that unifies us. And then, whether it happened here or it happened at another church, if you are a follower of Jesus, we have all experienced the same act of confession. Paul says, what's that act? Baptism. That every single one of us who follow Jesus, the way we confess that faith is going under the water, being buried with Jesus and coming up out of the water, raised with him. And is it not, I mean, just think about this. It's not just that we believe the same thing, but somewhere in our life, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have experienced that baptism. And all of us can go back to that moment and say, yeah, that was the moment when I confessed Jesus. That moment when I went under the water, when I come up, came up out of the water. Paul says we have this experience in Christ that unites us. But he also says what? The unity that we have comes from who? God. Because our God is united. He says there's one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, one Lord, Jesus, one Father, the fourth century church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, said it like this. Hold on to some of his words. He says, when I speak of God, be struck from all sides by the lightning of one light, and also three. Three in regard to the individualities, that is the hypostasis or the person's. But if one speaks of the essence, that is the divinity. <laughs> the way he talks about this is so incredible to me. He says, for they are divided undividedly. How do we do that? If I may speak thus, united in division. What he's saying is, listen, we serve one God. But that one God exists eternally in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The very thing that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Again, that unity of God is described in Deuteronomy 6.4. It's called the Shema in Israelite history. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Unity. The reason the body of Christ is unified, the reason that we have unity, is because our God is one. So here's for me is the incredible truth that Paul's teaching in these few verses. We can't create the unity, but we must protect it. Which is why Paul says, again, in verse 3, Be eager to maintain the unity. Another word for maintain is like guard or protect that unity. Now, I don't know about you. There are things in life that I am proactive about, and then there are things that I am reactive about. I hate cars. I don't know about you. And my care of my vehicles is entirely reactive, So, you know, I do the regular stuff, I keep the oil changed, that's about it. Try to keep gas in the car, and then I wait for something to break. (laughs) Like Whoops, it's broken. Compare that to like my health, or the health of my family. We're proactive, I schedule blood work, I schedule doctor's appointments, we make sure that we take care of ourselves. Why? Because we want to get ahead of whatever might be coming. And what Paul is saying is, listen, we should protect the unity of the church, not like you protect your car or my car, but more like how we protect our bodies and our health. So here's the question for you How are you protecting our unity? What are you doing to protect that unity? Paul tells us next in verses 7-11 through how we protect that unity. He says not only protect the unity, but number two, use the gift. Look at verse 7 with me. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So our triune God gives us the grace to protect our unity. So yeah, it's our responsibility to protect our unity, but in our own power, are we able to protect that unity? The answer is no. So it's our responsibility to protect the unity, but the unity that we're protecting, we're able to do so because it is God's grace that allows us to do that. Paul uses two different words in these few verses that are almost synonymous. He uses grace and he uses gift. And he's using those two words to remind us that this is not ours, that the grace that we have is not ours. In fact, I know it gets a little wonky and a little confusing here when he's talking about Jesus ascending and descending, and you're like, Paul, what is going on? Like, I get where you're, I get the argument you're trying to make, but I'm confused (laughs) as to what you're using this for. And what he's getting at when he's talking about ascending and descending is, again, the gospel. He's quoting a psalm here, and he's talking about descending being the incarnation that Jesus came to earth, and then ascending that he went to heaven. And when he went to heaven, he tells us what? That he would send his Holy Spirit. And so he's talking about the reason that Jesus can give us gifts is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the life, death, resurrection, that Jesus came to earth and lived that sinless life and then went to heaven and then sent his Holy Spirit. Now, when we think about grace, more often than not, what we think about is we think about salvation. Now, there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. In fact, Paul says that, right? Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and it's not a work of your own doing, it's the gift of God lest anyone should boast. And that's true, grace is that kind of salvific gift but the word grace is also used in scripture to denote gifts. To denote anything that doesn't come from us, but comes from God, is a part of grace. It's a part of the gift. And the way that Paul describes this is that it's according to the measure of Christ's gift. What he's getting at is he's saying, listen, Jesus is God. Christ is God. So the the measure in which he can give is immeasurable. It's infinity. Imagine if you went to the ocean and you had like a small jar and you were wanting to fill up that jar. If you went to the ocean, how easy would it be for you to fill that jar? Easy, right? Paul is saying in the same way, because of Christ's immeasurable grace, we can receive that grace easily. So it's the tri- it's our triune God who gives us that grace, and then our unity is protected by His gift. There, there's something that Paul does here between verses seven and ten, and verse eleven. And I think in verses seven through ten, what he's getting at is that we've all, each one of us, in fact, is what Paul says, have been given grace. We've been gifted with grace. He's not necessarily referring to salvation here. He's referring to like spiritual gifts. So every single one of us have these gifts. If we have Christ and we have the Holy Spirit. But in verse 11, he shifts away from us as individuals and he shifts away from all of us having unique gifts. And he says something else. Look at verse 11. So he's given this grace and he says, and he gave, that word's tied to the word gift. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So here, what is Paul referring to? I think spiritual gifts are in mind. I think individuals are in mind. But I think what Paul is actually getting at is the gift that he's given the church are these functions. So he's not just thinking about spiritual gifts. He's not thinking about specific individuals. He's saying, listen, the Holy Spirit has given the church these functions to protect the unity. Apostles are for the expansion of the church. We might not have apostles today like we had in the New Testament, But we have people who have the gift of that apostle that can expand the church. The prophets serve as the voice of God, speaking on behalf of God. Evangelists share the gospel that people can come to know Jesus. And shepherds and teachers are the leaders of the church, those who lead the people and teach the people. Here's what I think Paul is getting at. We have everything we need to protect our unity. Now, I don't know about you, but in my own personal life, and even sometimes in the church, I try to think outside of the box and say, we have all of this stuff, but maybe we need this, or maybe if we do this, or maybe if we have that. And Paul is saying, listen, God has already given you every single thing you need to protect the unity. Everything. What's important is for us, if we serve in that function, to serve and to do our due diligence. And by the way, I don't think what Paul is saying is that all of these functions are like paid positions in a local church. Some of you might be prophets and you'll never get paid a dime in the church, but God has called you to use that gift, to use that function to protect the church. So here's the question. How are you using your gifts to protect our unity? Notice something, too, that the the responsibility of protecting the unity is not on me. It's on who? Us. All of us. So Paul says all of that, and the reason he's getting at... Protecting the unity is last found in verses 11 through 16. We protect our unity, use the gift, lastly, grow the body. Our triune God gives us the ability to grow. Look at verses 12 and 13. So he gave those functions to do what? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So Paul gets at a lot here. He says, what's the purpose of the gifts? The purpose of the gifts is to equip the church. Now, equipping is this idea of if you have something that is lacking, you're doing work to fill it up to prepare it for the work that it's required. It's to make something adequate or sufficient for something. So that's the purpose of these functions. The aim, Paul says, is for the work of the ministry or for the saints to do the work of service. You notice the word saints here. Paul's not saying the work of the ministry is for the pastors and leaders to do the work of the church. Paul is saying it's the saints. The saints are who? Us, the church, to do the work of ministry. Don't get caught up in that word ministry. It literally means service. It's the word in the book of Acts when we called the first uh, deacons, it's the word used for table service like a waiter or a waitress. Paul says that's what we've been called and equipped to do. Notice that we're equipped not for just knowledge, but for action, to actually serve and do something. And the outcome, Paul says, is for the building up of the body. We've used that word building up before. Ephesians 2, verse 21, in whom the whole structure Being joined together grows into a holy temple. Paul is saying, listen, when we're all doing our part and we're serving our church and our community, the church literally gets built like a building to where it's able to be lived in and function in. And then Paul says, what's the goal of all of this? And I think what he's getting at is unity and maturity. If you look again at the end of that passage where he says, until... We all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. There's several things going on. One, when he says until. The use of the word until implies the goal will be met. Paul is saying, listen, one way or another, this is going to happen. And then the language that he uses is we, we all attain. Meaning, this is not an individual goal. It's a corporate goal. We're all responsible for it. So our triune God calls us to this, and here's the thing, and this is what I think Paul is getting at. Our growth is our unity, and our unity is our maturity. I think too many of us, myself included, are caught up in thinking about how I, me, how I am growing in my maturity. But do you notice that Paul could care less about us as individuals? And how he's actually more concerned about the body? And that when, listen, I think we get it wrong. If we grow in maturity, then the body will grow. I think Paul is saying the opposite. That if the body grows in maturity, guess what's going to happen? The individuals will grow in maturity. Which is why Paul connects unity to maturity. Because if we're not unified together, we're not able to grow into maturity. And if we're not able to grow into maturity as a body, we're not able to grow into maturity as individuals. That's what he says in verses 14 through 16. He says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Again, Paul's using this metaphor, and he's mixing metaphors. He's using the metaphor of like bodies and growth. Jesus is the head. We are his body. But at the same time, he's saying, listen, we're like a building. That as we grow, God is building us. And the, I think the incredible thing about this passage is what he says at the very end. That when we're actually unified and we're maturing in that unity, we are building ourselves up in love. I mean, think again about the human body, right? If you don't have a head, will you live? No, that's a simple biological truth. If someone cuts your head off, God forbid, by the way, it's not Halloween yet, you will not live. So Paul says the only way for us to live is to be connected to the head. That is Jesus. And then we can live and thrive and grow. But this is where the unity and maturity comes together. Imagine if your left hand did not want to cooperate with your right hand or your left leg did not want to cooperate with your right leg. And you're trying to walk forward, but your other leg is stopping you. And you literally can do nothing because you can't get your two legs to work together. I mean, if you can't do that, you can't do much of anything. So Paul is saying, listen, when we're united, when we are unified, when all the parts of the body are connected to the head and are working together, it's only then that we grow. And as we're united together, we grow together. And as we grow together, as individuals, we grow into maturity. We grow into the image of Jesus. Listen, there's no maturity without unity, and there's no unity without maturity. So here's the question. How are you growing the church into one mature body how are you growing the church into one mature body our triune god equips his church to grow into the unity and maturity of christ and just as we talked about at the very beginning There are many things that could divide us. But my prayer is that the thing that unites us, Jesus, is the person who forces us to protect our unity. It's the the thing that forces us to use our gifts. It's the thing that forces us to grow our body. My prayer is that we wouldn't allow things like politics to divide us. That in the midst of differences, we would encourage unique and different backgrounds. That as a church, in developing community and loving one another, we wouldn't become cliquish. Where when someone comes in or is saved into our body, they wouldn't look around and and not find Community. I pray that in our differences we could serve one another and those who look or sound different than us, we would serve them. That we wouldn't let our preferences drive us. And that the things that we would be united around would be things like the truth of Scripture our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have to protect the unity. Use the gift and grow the body. I want to do something a little bit different this morning. It's going to make some of you uncomfortable. That's okay. But I want to physically demonstrate the unity. So I want all of us to stand up and if you feel comfortable, I want you to hold hands, link arms, get close. As close as you feel comfortable. Even across the aisles. Let's come together. And what I want to do as a show of unity is not just this, but you're going to see a prayer on the screen and it's a corporate prayer that we are going to say together. Because this is what we're praying for. This is only what God can do. Not us. So together, let's say this prayer. Father, thank you for the gift of your church. Thank you that by the blood of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit, you have united us together. Give us the desire to protect the unity you have given Vintage Church. May we use the gifts and roles you've gifted us with to protect this unity. As we protect our unity, grow us into maturity. May each of us take responsibility, not only for our own maturity, but also for the maturity of Vintage Church. May you continue to transform us into your Son, Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Church NOLA podcast. If you're enjoying this content, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you next week.